You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This podcast is sponsored by Talkspace. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. By talking or texting with a supportive, licensed therapist at Talkspace, you'll gain insights, discover truths, and experience breakthroughs that will improve how you live and how you feel. With Talkspace, just answer a few questions online, and you'll be matched with a therapist. And because you'll meet your therapist online, you don't have to take time off work or arrange childcare. You'll meet on your schedule whenever you feel most at ease. Plus, Talkspace works with most major insurers, and most insured members only pay a $25 copay or less. No insurance? No problem. If you want to make progress toward a mentally healthier place, Talkspace is here for you. Now get $80 off your first month with promo code SPACE80 when you go to Talkspace.com. Match with a licensed therapist today at Talkspace.com. Save $80 with code SPACE80 at Talkspace.com. History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History, the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. From a revolution of hope and liberty to the infamous reign of terror, you can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So search for the French Revolution today. Welcome to Historical Blindness, a special episode. This is going to be our first interview on the show. Uh, Today I have the great honor of speaking with a researcher and historian whose work has been indispensable to several episodes of the podcast. I relied heavily on his research way back in my episode on the Flannan Isles Lighthouse Keepers, and more recently in my October episodes on Springheeled Jack and the Devil's Hoof Marks. Uh, He is the esteemed author of seven books, uh, including very well-received historical works on the origins of the American Mafia, uh, the criminal underworld in turn-of-the-century Manhattan, and the thuggy death cult of India that a lot of people may only know from the film Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Uh, Also, in recent years, he's done fantastic work for Smithsonian.com's blog, Past Imperfect, uh, and at his own blog at MikeDash.com, covering a lot of topics I think that listeners of this podcast would find fascinating. So check out his work there. Uh, We'll give links in the show notes. Uh, Thank you very much, Mike Dash, for being here. Pleasure. Uh, So I'd like to just start, uh, if we can, by talking about some of those topics I mentioned. Uh, As I said, I I relied on some of your research when I did an episode on the disappearance of the Flannan Isles lighthouse keepers, and then recently uh, Spring Hill Jack, the Devil's Hoof Marks. Those those uh, those topics that had me seeking out your work. Those were topics you researched, I believe, for Fortean studies. And I, I was wondering, right. yeah, in, back in the 1990s, originally, a lot of them. I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about "quote unquote" Fortean research, what that means, uh, and and what drew you to do such in-depth research in that field, if you'd call it a field. I just about guess you could call it a field. Um, for those who don't know, Fortean uh, research is a word that's coined in honour of an American author from the uh, first 20 years of the last century, a guy called Charles Fort, who wrote four books, starting with a book called The Book of the Damned, um, which were the first to bring together um, a large number of these sort of strange phenomena that we currently lump together under the overall term of Fortian. Um, Fort had a very specific um, perspective on all of this, and um, exactly what that is, is has been challenged, I think, a little bit over the years. He wrote in a very gnomic style, which is quite hard to penetrate. Um, but fundamentally, the people who are supporters of his his work tend to view him as somebody who was actually, in, in many ways, a super skeptic. Um, he wrote um, playfully. So he, he wrote, for example, about the idea of uh, that we ruled from Mars. He wrote about the idea that things that fall from the sky 
come from a sort of super sargasso sea, as he put it, of <laughs> sort of suspended in a sort of jelly-like state over the, over the earth. So, you know, in a sense, he sounds like an absolute classic crank. But um, the, the point is, I think, that he didn't believe a lot of this stuff or any of it. He liked throwing out wild hypotheses, in a sense, to sort of show how bad or how challengeable other people's hypotheses were. So, if anything, he was a, an enemy of what he would have called, I think, dogmatic science. So, you know, uh-huh. not perhaps the scientific method, but the idea that we know everything, there is nothing new to discover, we can explain it all. That's really what Fort was out to challenge. And so um, his his inheritors today, who are mainly focused around a magazine that's published in the UK, and which I was a member of the staff of for quite a few years, which is called 14 Times, which appears monthly, um, continue that work. I mean, so really it's about gathering together material, um, presenting it, and maybe putting out a few humorous explanations, but not really taking it absolutely, literally, absolutely seriously. Um, and that is a sort of inoculation, if you like, mm-hmm. against the dangers of becoming a crank, because obviously the big difference is that cranks believe one thing passionately and are very resistant to alternative explanations or the discovery of information that sort of undermines their pet theories. Mm-hmm. And so Fortians are the exact opposite of that, or they should be at any rate. And, and that is really where the word Fortian studies come, the term Fortian studies comes from when the word Fortian is is used in this sort of other blanket term. Was there anything in particular that drew you to, to study in this field? Were you always interested in Fortian topics or... I guess, you know, from childhood to, I mean, I absolutely, like a lot of kids, loved mysteries. And like a lot of kids, I started off being fairly credulous um, and, you know, believing that if someone had gone to the trouble of writing a book about it, they probably checked it all out and it was probably true. (laughs) And of course, you know, I mean, a large number of people, a distressing number of people never seem to quite make the move beyond that. Um, But I think if you read this stuff, carefully and and with a, a, an active mind eventually you begin to realize that it can't all be true and in my case for example i started off my main interest i think was um in in lake monsters the loch ness monster things like that uh-huh. um, and when you get to the point of reading a book like there's a book by a couple called janet and colin board called alien animals and they had an appendix that listed all of the lakes in which lake monsters have been reported and there's 268 of them and i think <laughs> at that point you know you have to say how credible is it? Okay, maybe, I mean, maybe it's less incredible that, you know, uh, something could survive in a really gigantic lake like Loch Ness, which is 25 miles long and, you know, 750 feet deep, um, mm-hmm. although it has a great biodiversity, but it means a big lake and things could live in it. That's maybe not incredible, but uh, just unlikely. But, it, you know, some of these lakes are not much more than puddles or ponds. Um, <laughs> So, so okay, so they, it's probably unlikely that these things exist in all 268. But then the next step is to say, but actually, there's almost no difference between the sorts of reports you get from a puddle and from Loch Ness. I mean, it's not as though they are clearly different. And so once you start making roads, inroads down that line of reasoning, you start wondering about the nature of the reporting and the, you know, the personal beliefs of the people who are doing the reporting, the way in which the media approaches it, all these sorts of contextualizing questions, which are vital questions, should, I think, come into your mind. And that's a process I underwent, I guess, between the ages <laughs> of, I don't know, 14 and 18, 14 and 19, something like that, mm-hmm. um, and emerged at the other end a lot more skeptical than I went out. But it was something that I taught myself rather than being sort of forced through it by somebody else. And so I guess it was a, a more useful learning experience at that point of view, at least. Well, I think it's wonderful that even though you uh, uh, grew into this more skeptical uh, mindset that you don't avoid the topics. Uh, I, I just recently spoke at the Sound Education Podcast Conference at Harvard, and I was speaking about the fact that I think uh, journalists and educators, and I suspect historians also, they will often avoid topics that are considered dubious or kooky for, for any number of reasons. A lot of times they're, they may be protecting their reputations or trying to cultivate themselves, their, their reputation as a serious uh, academic. Uh, do you find that to be a case, or, or has, has your interest in Fortian topics ever uh, held you back or affected your career or people's opinion of you in any way? Well, that's a really important and interesting question. And the answer to that, in a sense, is yes. Um, um, My wife, for example, was very anxious to edit 
the Wikipedia entry on me that somebody put up because it mentioned all of this 40 and stuff and she was keen <laughs> that I was seen as a serious historian and didn't see that the two things could really sit in the same entry. And I think that some people, I mean, I've never been an academic historian at a university, so it doesn't apply to me to a certain extent. I have a bit more freedom than that, although I am a qualified historian. I've got a PhD and I've written history books, but I've never been a, a university academic. Um, and that, <clears throat> I, I suspect that, you know, just because the world of academia is small and um, gossipy and mm-hmm. highly, highly competitive, that there will be some people in that sort of situation. And I'm, you know, I think that the key thing, though, that we need to talk about here, and it's, again, it's a vital one for this subject as a whole, is that the reason for that is because a large number of people who don't know the topics very well see them in extremely black and white terms. So you might be asked, do you believe in ghosts? And what they mean by that invariably is, do you believe that ghosts are the spirits of the dead? Do you believe in UFOs means, do you believe that UFOs are alien spacecraft? Now, that is actually a very, very limiting way of looking at those two phenomena. Mm-hmm. People who have studied them, you know, are perfectly capable of saying that there is something worth studying in the UFO phenomenon without accepting that we're seeing anything that comes from outside our own atmosphere. Yeah. Um, and so what there actually is, is there's, you know, there are a group of people who are perhaps more likely to be in the science, the hard, the, the sort of hard subjects where there are right and wrong answers to things, are perhaps more likely to look down on this sort of field and be sceptical. In some parts of humanities and social sciences, this type of stuff is actually becoming a lot more um, studied and a lot more respectable than it is, because once you actually start moving beyond this very um, black and white view that I mentioned, um, you can say that a lot of the things that Fortin's study are actually vitally important to sociology, to history and so on. Mm-hmm. So one of the big things that Fortin Times has done very well, I think, over the years, for example, is it's kept track of uh, what historians and sociologists call moral panics, um, which is where society gets very het up about some subject which is morally um, challenging to that society and it can cause you know tremendous amounts of damage when these sort of panics get whipped up the mm-hmm. the witch trials are often held out as an example of that mm-hmm. and more recently as recently as the 1980s late early 1990s the satanic ritual abuse scare mm-hmm. that a lot of people will remember is is now seen with a bit of benefit of hindsight as a classic example of a moral panic now i was reporting on that for 14 times at the time it was happening and we took a very skeptical point of view on that and and called it as a moral panic pretty much before anybody else did and um you know when the um when the british government appointed uh, a commission to look into this after the the panic had subsided a bit and people were beginning to wonder about the number of kids who'd been torn away from their families by social workers who believed literally that satanic rituals and murders were taking place. Um, they appointed a woman called Joan Lafontaine, who's a professor of anthropology. And one of the first people she came to talk to was us because we had better records than anybody else, actually, of what on earth had actually been going on. I mean, she talked to the police forces and so on as well, but she she was very keen to talk to us and to, to hear what we'd been reporting on, how we how we constructed it so there is a certain sort of academic the sort who are interested in social history in um in rumors and panics and things like that who actually take all this a lot more seriously now than perhaps they did 20 30 40 years ago and so increasingly parts of it are becoming you know reasonably academically credible but i think that for an academic in those sort of fields to move beyond the this is folklore, this is rumour, panic, uh, you know, uh, and the sort of um, academic labels get applied to it to say there's something in this, that would be a step that many people even now, even if they thought it, would probably be very reluctant to take. Yeah, and it's it's a refreshing viewpoint. I think I I think it's a shame when when uh, when people avoid stories like these because I think as an educator. I use them because they're so good for modeling what's good research, good evaluation of sources, good critical thinking, which which you show so much in your research when you're evaluating uh, the secondary uh, uh, literature as well as the primary source material. There's an opportunity to re- to examine the reliability of of these dubious sources and to understand how how falsehoods get spread, how myths uh, get spread, and you do that really well in your work. Uh, there's a tagline on your blog that struck me: the the his, uh, history with all the interesting bits left in. Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, so I was wondering if you could speak to that. Do you do you think historiography uh, shuns good storytelling or it tends to that it? Uh, well, sorry, please finish. <laughs> oh, ju- just uh, d- do you think they uh, they prefer that dry academic tone, and is that to their uh, uh, detriment? Well, I mean, you know, academic history doesn't do all-out narrative. And as somebody who's written popular nonfiction, so in other words, you know, narrative nonfiction. So you mentioned my book on the American Mafia, um, for example. You know, I'm increasingly aware as I write those sorts of books what a terrible format for proper historical inquiry they are, because the one that you can't do very well in the middle of a narrative is to break off and evaluate a source and say, you know, this might this might be not actually true and let's compare Mm -hmm. it you know all of that stuff gets in the way of telling a story there is also certainly you know from the point of view that you're trying to sell books to make a living some people are anyway um (laughs) an imperative to pick you know if you've got several alternative points of view to pick the most dramatic one and to maybe suppress some of the stuff that makes it less dramatic um and i've been tempted at least i hope i've resisted the temptation but i've been close enough to it to realize how easy it is to be tempted and how difficult it is to do really good history in a narrative format so with that said i think that the best historians are very aware that history and story are very related things. And so even in the most academic works, you'll often you know, get an opening chapter, half chapter, a chapter opening, which is a little bit of narrative that helps to sort of suck you into the, the, the whole discussion and also contextualize it. So I don't think that you know, historians, uh, academic history and narrative are complete strangers to each other, mm-hmm. actually. But um, you know, the, the subtitle to the blog that you mentioned is really a, a sort of pushback against the sort of history that's often studied in schools actually because mm-hmm. um certainly in the uk I, I find it terribly sad but it's it's you know the, the number of people who say oh i don't i don't like history it's boring i find it quite incredible i mean the number of times you hear that is is terrifying and what they really mean is that you know they can't relate to it fundamentally <laughs> and you know, that they're being forced to learn about people that they they don't think of they can identify with or are very interesting because they're not like them and they're being forced to learn a large number of dates now of course you know any historian worth their salt would say well you know that's school history there's a lot more to history than that mm-hmm. and what i try to do in the blog and in the books i've written and the work i did for the smithsonian that you mentioned as well is to show that you know history is the most incredible and you know by far the most fascinating for me at least topic because it is you know full of humanity um and the most amazing and fascinating things do happen and the most amazing and fascinating people do become actors in these sort of historical um incidents um and i also think actually and this maybe hooks what we're talking now into what we were talking about a couple of minutes ago that one of the things that I find about history is that you can learn most about us as as humans from you know how people reacted in the most extreme situations rather than the most ordinary situations. And so yeah. the thing that links everything I've ever written, really, both in the Fortean field and the historical field, is that I'm very, very attracted to these sort of extraordinary times and places and incidents because I find them revealing as well as because they're exciting to, to read about. Hmm. Absolutely. Uh, I agree. I, I'm wondering if maybe for next couple of questions, I'd like to to revisit some of those topics. Uh, the uh, I know I know you've written about so much more, but uh, it's those Fortean topics that I uh, have uh, have covered on my show. Uh, sure. Uh, I would love to talk a little bit about. Uh, you did a really great job talking about what was really mysterious in the disappearance of the Flannan Isles lighthouse keepers, mm-hmm. uh, and and then also showing what was probably embellished in secondary literature, what there's less support for, uh, what misunderstandings we have. Uh, it seems like the the main thing that that st- stuck with you uh, as being very unusual, at least from my reading, was uh, that the occasional uh, lighthouse keeper, MacArthur, uh, if you recall, he, he, he left his coat behind, um, and, uh, and but the, he also shut the doors behind him, apparently. Mm. It seemed it seems unusual since he if he was rushing out in a panic because he saw a freak wave washing the other two keepers away then it wouldn't seem like he would have taken the time to shut each door so basically i'm just wondering if if you've given much further thought to the disappearance of the flannan isles lighthouse keepers where you're kind of falling on that Mm -hmm. mystery now well i think you know my my general perception of all of these is that you know 
and we'll probably come to talk about them in the other cases as well. You know, there are single incidences which have become very famous because they appear very mysterious. And that's because they are very unusual. But it doesn't mean that they are unique. It means that a certain combination of circumstances have happened to make it harder to explain you know, what actually occurred. Um, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they are you know, inexplicable or that, in fact, you know, similar types of circumstances might not have occurred quite often that just didn't lead to quite such bizarre um, endings. I mean, in the case of, you know, to, to address the specific question you just asked me, um, we don't know anything really about the exact um, way in which the, the lighthouse on the Flannels was left in the sense that um, there were probably at least two or three days between when the disappearance happened and when the relief finally occurred. And the report that was written was not the world's most detailed report either. Right. So, for example, you know, we've all gone out of a house and had the door slammed behind us because we left a window open and the breeze has blown through the house. I guess that's ah. happened to everybody. This happened in the middle of a storm. Had there been any window open or broken or just had the storm sort of, you know, blown the wind around in a circular way, you know, who knows what could have happened to that door. It may, it may have been that MacArthur rushed out and did leave the door open or half a jar and the wind blew it shut. That's, that, mm -hmm. that's at least a possible explanation. Right. Um, I think that, you know, I mean, to, to look at it a little bit more generally, um, the thing that makes the lighthouse story so impossible for many people to accept as something that has a credible, rational explanation is the mysterious entries in the logbook, um, which you possibly touched on in your, your blog, uh, in your, your podcast, sorry, I'm not sure. Um, but yes, uh, yeah. for those who, again, who haven't heard that episode or forgotten it, um, the, the logbook that was left behind by the lighthouse keepers supposedly contained some very strange and mystical entries about, mm -hmm. um, you know, sort of still, well, you know, bizarre psychological effects going on amongst the lighthouse keepers right. themselves. The crying, Some, God is overall. Crying, exactly, crying, praying, weeping. Um, and, and also said very explicitly that, you know, they were still there after the storm had finished. That's the thing that, again, a lot of people focus in on because, you know, it's easy to imagine lighthouse keepers getting washed off a, a storm racked rock in the middle of the Atlantic in the middle of a storm, much harder to imagine three people simultaneously going vanished, yeah. uh, vanishing in, in calm conditions. So what I did, uh, and it was years after I wrote the original paper, I finally managed to solve that mystery mm -hmm. by looking into the question of where that particular aspect had come from. And it was possible to track it down ultimately to an American pulp magazine called True Strange Stories that appeared in 1929. That's the place that these lighthouse uh, logbook entries were first published. Mm -hmm. And this this story was written by a man called Ernest Fallon. So um, I went to a lot of trouble a couple of years ago to try and find out how this story had come into this magazine and who Ernest Fallon might be. Mm. Um, now, I'm, firstly, I managed to establish that Ernest Fallon had only ever apparently written one story in his life, which was this one. <laughs> uh, there is a fantastic internet resource called the, you know, the Pulp Magazine um, Index or something, which lists by, by author everything's ever appeared in American pulps and Fallon had only ever written this one thing. So that was pretty weird. And then when you look at it a little bit more carefully, you realize that in fact, true strange stories had this peculiarity that it had a number of people who had only ever written one story and had published that in true strange stories. So I looked further into the background and I discovered that this was a magazine put out by a very interesting guy called Bernard McFadden, who was in some respects, for example, the father of modern bodybuilding and also the father of modern health food eating to a certain extent. He, he was a, a weird guy who had a mixture of very, very modern and up, uh, you know, correct sorts of thinking about the types of food we should eat and sort of you know, 19th century quackery as well. And he had founded a series of magazines to promote his bodybuilding empire. And then from that, it discovered that the thing that really sold best was sort of true confessions type stuff people were writing in about their own personal experiences. So in 1919, he launched a magazine called True Story, which was just a sort of confessional magazine, um, which is full of that type of story. And it became the publishing sensation of the 1920s. I mean, very few people seem to remember it now, but it sold more than any other magazine on American newsstands for nearly 20 years. And a whole number of spin-offs came out of it. And of course, the thing about True, uh, about true Story is that, you know, in a sense, the stories weren't true. I mean, they were of a type and were embellished and you know ran within sort of very narrow parameters um and in fact the the guy who well, i'll come on to in a moment the guy who edited true strange story said that you know that magazine was launched to see if there was a market for anything 
other than um, rape, adultery, and muscles, which essentially was what all the other <laughs> McFadden magazines were full of at that time. Um, and it, you know, I mean, the, the skeptics at that time, the critics said, you know, this is, it's, um, I'm ruined journalism was the way they characterized it. You know, you'd done something that had led your life into, you know, everyone else was looking down on you and you couldn't hold your head up in society. You'd had a baby out of wedlock, you had got divorced, um, you know, something, you committed a crime, whatever it was. And so those were the sorts of, there was a very heavy moral component to these mm-hmm. confessions. So I discovered that True Strange Stories came out of this stable. And I discovered that the editor was another very interesting man called John L. Spivak. Um, who spent most of the period from the 1930s and 1950s living under a variety of pseudonyms because he was an active communist and was blacklisted during the various um, red panics of that period. Um, But he had written some memoirs at the end of his life, and he described how, having been appointed editor, he ran into the immediate problem that he needed 18 5,000-word features a month and he didn't have enough budget for them. Um, And so he decided to write them himself and to earn a bit of extra money during the Great Depression by doing that. Um, and he g- goes into a little bit of detail in his memoirs about how he did this, which was effectively to go into the New York Public Library and spend a morning doing a bit of research. And, you know, he says very explicitly, all I needed for a, a story for this magazine was a couple of names, a place, something to hang it on that was true. And then I could make the rest of it up. Oh, wow. So, you know, having gone through that process, I think I now understand very clearly why Ernest Fallon only ever wrote one story. It's because Spivak had used it as a pseudonym for that one occasion. And I understand how it, he, he came to write it about an actual event and write about something really weird and kooky and spooky that nobody else had ever written before. It all makes a lot of sense when you go through that <laughs> process. So that's good historical research, I hope. And gosh, that was about a 10-minute answer to a single question. No, that's... I'm sorry to bore your audience, but <laughs> no, it no. does tell us something important, not just about that one incident, but about how these types of stories need to be thought carefully about and investigated and not taken at face value. Absolutely. I'm so glad you told that story because I remember when I read your piece on the on the Lighthouse Keepers that uh, you had tracked down um, mention of those uh, those log entries to the true strange tales. But I think at the time in what I had read, you yeah. hadn't yet been able to track that further Majesty. down. No, well, this is... The, you know, the great thing about the, the internet has made my life very different and made a lot of historians' lives very different as well. And what is possible now couldn't remotely have been done when I wrote that story back in 1997, 98. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I went back and I did it properly with new technology, uh, and that made a big difference. This podcast is sponsored by Talkspace. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. By talking or texting with a supportive licensed therapist at Talkspace, you'll gain insights, discover truths, and experience breakthroughs that will improve how you live and how you feel. With Talkspace, just answer a few questions online and you'll be matched with a therapist. And because you'll meet your therapist online, you don't have to take time off work or arrange childcare. You'll meet on your schedule whenever you feel most at ease. Plus, Talkspace works with most major insurers. And most insured members only pay a $25 copay or less. No insurance? No problem. If you want to make progress toward a mentally healthier place, Talkspace is here for you. Now get $80 off your first month with promo code SPACE80 when you go to Talkspace.com. Match with a licensed therapist today at Talkspace.com. Save $80 with code SPACE80 at Talkspace.com. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. So I'm wondering uh, if you, uh, I remember when you, 
when I read the, your your piece on the Devil's Hoof marks, the Great Devon mystery, uh, you were you were kind of in this place. You mentioned to me actually that that you uh, you you were in the same place as you were when you wrote it, uh, and it seemed when I read that 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 you had. Uh, You'd concluded that it will probably always remain a mystery because there's such a shortage of primary source evidence in that case. But I'm wondering, you did such a great job of laying out these different possible explanations there. I'm wondering if you have a favorite or if you lean more towards like the, the idea if it's a human hoax or misidentified mm. animal tracks or uh, a combination yeah. Well, a combination is most likely, I, I guess. I mean, you know, to, to backtrack very slightly, this is a, a different sort of case to the lighthouse keepers ones in that mm-hmm. when you, you know, and I have tried to reinvestigate it with the advent of digitization of newspapers and so on, but no new sources have actually really emerged in the process of doing that, unfortunately. So we are still pretty much where we were when I wrote that back in 94. Um, but I mean, you know, this is another example where you, you know, the work involved is really, um, clearing away the sort of smoothing over and mystification that goes on in a lot of secondary works. When you go back to the primary sources, it does become a a huge amount clearer. For example, the idea that human hoaxes were involved, I certainly wouldn't rule it out, but the, the descriptions that you actually see in the primary sources don't make a lot of sense as human hoaxes because, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, the, the idea that of a hoax would be, and again, I mean, to look at some of the sources that have come out about this, the most popular theory is that the prints were left by one group of travellers, um, you know, sort of Romany, uh, to terrify another group who were um, not who, who were not believers in Christianity as the Romany were at that point, but mm. believed in a lot of um, sort of semi-pagan um, sort of spirits and uh, and sort of you know witchcraft type of beliefs, and they were called pikeys. Mm. Now, for that to be a credible theory, you have to imagine the Romany um, going to a lot of trouble to make these prints look spooky, and and you know the way in which they're described in this secondary source by the grandson of somebody who was allegedly involved was very much of that sort, you know, that they were a straight line that went sort of undeviatingly across all obstacles like, uh, you know, over rooftops, through haystacks and so on. Now, that would be terrifying, if true. I mean, you could easily imagine another group of people thinking that only the devil could have made marks of that sort. And, you Mm. know, he's apparently dematerialized and walked through a haystack, that type of stuff. Now, those descriptions just don't appear in the primary sources, which refer to sort of crazy higgledy-piggledy groups of tracks that double back on themselves and crisscross and so on. And also, you know, the the idea that these tracks went across Devon in a dead straight line for 100 miles is something that only appears in the secondary sources. And when you read the primary sources and do a bit of calculation, the furthest that anyone tracked any one set of tracks, and again, we don't know really how well they did that, Mm -hmm. is about four miles. So not beyond the possibility of it being an animal track or, you know, something like that. Um, and so I think, again, it's, it's very much you just have to get back to the primary sources and see what they tell you. And the reality in the case of the Devil's Hoop Marks is that, you know, the, the, the vast majority of the reporting that appeared in newspapers wasn't being done by people who had gone out and investigated this. They were reporting what other people had told them or what they'd heard effectively. And, you know, we were in a period where there wasn't a sort of large newspaper staff who could be sent out to interview people on the spot and investigate. It's, you know, the local papers at that time were one guy and a printer. They just sort of took what was sent into them from local correspondence or from, you know, picking up gossip fundamentally in their towns. And that is not an ideal way of getting the right sort of depth of and uh, double checking of evidence that you would need to really resolve a mystery so I, I i'm still unfortunately in the place where i don't honestly think that we're going to solve that particular case in such a way that everyone will agree that that's the solution at least hmm. you know it's it's funny though that the uh, the flannan isles uh, lighthouse keepers and the devil's hoof marks and what i'm what i want to talk about next the spring-heeled jack story it seems like people in all of those cases uh the way that the stories have been embellished a lot of times they end up being embellished by uh people suggesting they have to do with aliens or ufos Mm -hmm. in in nearly every case right uh and then uh that's that's one of the things that's one of my favorite uh, bits of of your research. My favorite piece was the the Springhill Jack uh, work that you've done, and I saw a couple of trends in that 
that I that I run into all the time just in my own little uh, show and, you know, my modest look at these kinds of topics. Uh, so I wanted to kind of talk about Spring Heel Jack and these two trends that I tend to see uh, mm. in, in how stories get embellished. Um, one, I think, has to do with a relationship between sensational media uh, unreliable newspaper reportage especially back in the the uh, the eight, the 1800s uh the spread of uh, the also the spread of urban legend uh or hysteria uh which these are both things that you've talked about those the, the forces they seem to feed into each other in in my experience and then they end up creating these legends that persist even today as mysteries, I saw it a lot when I was looking into the phantom airship sightings across America in the 1890s. Yeah, absolutely. And and it seems it's it's unclear whether to me, and it's probably a combination, <laughs> uh, but whether it's people spreading falsehoods or be they are deluded. Uh, uh, they, they are mistaken when they make eyewitness reports and this results in fake news or, or, or maybe even, uh, earnest news reportage based on false reports or vice versa. Newspaper hoaxes are touching off hysterias, which then results in further fake news. Uh, and, and I, yeah, I know that you probably have a lot to say about Victorian newspapers. I've heard you uh, talk before about researching in Victorian newspapers and you wrote quite a bit about, how the Spring Hill Jack is a, a perfect example of like a proto urban legend. So I was wondering if you could speak to this relationship between uh, hysteria or urban legends and then newspaper reports and, and uh, you know, how they spread these kinds of stories. Well, I will, but I mean, I'll, I'll just back off slightly just, just to make the point that you're absolutely right in saying that there are two forces at work here. And you, again, I mean, you just have to look very carefully and critically and see them at work, you know, and I'll, I'll come back to this. So at the time, the reporting was not ideal. Since the time, the story has been picked up by secondary sources and, mm -hmm. you know, recycled and polished within an inch of its life um, and given, therefore, sort of mysterious elements that can't be explained because they've taken away all of the sort of uncertainty and you know, miscellaneous bits and pieces of information that don't quite fit and crafted it into a single narrative that can't really be assailed if all you've got is a secondary source. And Spring Hill Jack is a fantastically good example of this process, which underpins 90-plus percent of all of the way in which you know, the average person who only reads secondary sources views every sort of strange phenomena. Um, and either you become a, an outright skeptic because it's also obviously ludicrous, or you become an outright believer because you know it can't be, you know, there's nothing that can possibly be explained about this. So in the case of Spring Hill Jack, for example, it's often said, you know, the same basic figure appears in London in 1937 and disappears in Liverpool in 1904. You only have to do a bit of basic maths to work out it can't possibly be a human being because <laughs> nobody could remain active over that sort of period. But the stories are supposedly the same. You know, the idea of this sort of, you know, that Spring Hill Jack has been seen doing these preternatural leaps that no human being could, that he breathes these giant gouts of fire mm -hmm. to everybody all the time across this whole period. It's absolutely just not true, <laughs> but it's in every secondary source that there is. And so if you just basing yourself on that secondary source, of course, you're going to either say, well, it's got to be a load of rubbish because it's so incredible or it's got to be true because it's so incredible. You know, the nuance is to go back to the, the contemporary sources and see what they actually say. And, you know, I mean, the the. The, the published version that you have read is date dates back now over 20 years. And I feel quite embarrassed by it because I've done, I mean, this is my big sort of lifetime project and I've spent a long time. And obviously again, with the advent of digital newspapers, it, a lot more has become possible. So just to give a very basic example, when I, I mean, I put a lot of effort into reading those Victorian newspapers mm -hmm. on microfilm in the British newspaper library to write my first paper. And I would not recommend it to anybody because newspapers in that time were all published in sort of giant blocks of six-point type with no illustrations and no headlines. And to read it on microfilm on a tiny little squinty microfilm, microfilm reader while simultaneously being anxious that you're missing something um, <laughs> is a not very pleasant. And to do that for weeks and weeks and weeks on end, as I did, is a very unpleasant experience indeed. But having done that, 
Um, and I started work on this in, 19, in January 1983, and I published my first results in 1996. I've been going about 13 years by that point. I had 45,000 words of source material from primary sources, newspapers mainly. Now, uh, and with considerably less expenditure of effort than we now we have keyword searchable databases, I have over 350,000 words, so nearly 10 times as much. Wow. Wow. Um, that is an example, and, and that's discarding all the duplicates of which there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of stories that appeared in many, you know, many, many newspapers, and I've only used one. So, I mean, that's a lot of material, um, a lot. And it's plenty to see that um, the say, you know, this isn't, yeah, Spring Hill Jack is essentially a label that is, for much of this period, just applied to any sort of um, uh, certain sorts of ghost reports fundamentally where the ghost is uncatchable and appears to be elusive or, you know, vanishes before it can be caught. Uh, certain sorts of street crime, particularly assaults on women on on mm -hmm. sort of dark street corners where somebody leaps out at them. All of those things get labelled Spring Hill Jack stories. And when you go back to, and, and read the original newspapers, it becomes immediately obvious that we're not talking about the same person or monster or alien appearing in various different places across 60 or 70 years. We're talking about a label that's been very lazily in many cases applied. And in most cases, these stories have almost nothing to do with the original Spring Hill Jack stories that date back to 1837-38 in London, and which do in fact feature some of the things that Spring Hill Jack's famous for. So there are, you know, I mean, the, the label itself, which implies this incredible agility is there. Um, there are at least two or three reports in which Spring Hill Jack did apparently breathe blue and white balls of fire into the faces of his hapless female victims. He was reported to be wearing bizarre iron claws and to have scratched and, and clawed at his victims as well. Um, he, you know, there are these weird stories of sort of shape shifting that he's seen in the form of uh, a monster as a, as a sort of white bull, as a giant, uh, a, a giant heifer as um a, a giant baboon um and also as a sort of you know a spirit clad in armor like hamlet's father's ghost for example so mm -hmm. lots of different guises that he has in that very early period and of course as a demon effectively i mean that's what the real spring hill jack is uh, real probably not very effectively then to sort of verbal inverted commas um you know is effectively a demon um, mm -hmm. And that's why he had, he breathes fire. I mean, it's what demon, you know, he comes from hell. Of course, he breathes fire. When you look at it from that view, it becomes obvious. Um, so there are these reports. But again, when you look into it and read it very carefully, the things they're applying here that I mentioned with regard to the devil's hoof mark. So, you know, and I have done a lot of work that I hadn't done back then. And I've had help from people who know more about this than I do as well, about how Victorian newspaper reporting worked. And very mm -hmm. basically, even the biggest papers at the time, and the Times, for example, which is still going, it was the biggest then, had very small staffs. The Times had a, a full-time reporting staff of 12 people, and I think 10 of those were parliamentary reporters who just sat in the House of Commons and wrote the speeches down. So you know, nobody had a core of reporters who went out and investigated this stuff. All of the crime reporting and a lot of the Spring Hill Jack stuff comes from reports from police officers where you know, people who've had these experiences go and talk to magistrates. All of that comes from a sort of freelance reporter called the Penny Aligner, who were notoriously liable to exaggerate stories because they were paid a penny a line. And the more uh -huh. exotic stories were, the more lines they get in the newspaper. Uh, and they were certainly also not above um, re, uh, repackaging old stories. So one of the curious things when you look at it carefully that you can say about Spring Hill Jack is that he appears when Parliament is in recess. So when there is space to fill in newspapers. Um, and at that time, you know, penny aligners would make more money. And if nothing was happening, they would demonstrably recycle old stories. So you can find examples for exa of, you know, murders that are reported that, you know, a 20 year old murder is repackaged, given a slightly different scenario, different name and published in the newspapers. And when you look at, uh, and again, it's easier now to do it, you can trace back examples of Spring Hill Jack type stories back as far as 1677 and regularly from 1804 these types of stories appeared in the British newspapers they weren't called Spring Hill Jack stories hmm. but they featured characters with those same uh, some of those same attributes so again I mean you know I'm perfectly aware that they will be sort of you know out and out believers will just say well that just proves the case it's the, the agent was there <laughs> than we thought um, but for me, it's more that, you know, this is a type of story. It's a piece of, 
some sort of folklore fundamentally which is repeated and you know what's interesting about the 1837 case is it just catches fire in a in a better way than some of the earlier ones but there's not again to go back to my point about the late monsters in the very beginning of the, the show there's not a lot that distinguishes the spring Hill jack of 1837 38 from the uh, various monsters being reported in 1837, 1826, 1825, 
in the lane who says I was 100 yards, 80 to 100 yards away, and I could see this incident happening, and I did not see any blue and white balls of fire. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, if there were blue and white balls of fire, they aren't the sort that we imagine as sort of you know giant gouts of fire like a fire eater at a circus. Um, there might it might be possible that Jane isn't lying because I met a, a magician who's a specialist in the history of magic who told me that um, people magicians at that time used a technique involving um, sort of wads of cotton soaked in a sort of alcohol uh, which they could breathe out fumes into a, a lit uh, you know, a, 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 a fire source and that would give very localised fire that if you were four or five feet away you would see a ball of flame if you were 80 yards away you wouldn't see a ball of flame that hmm. seems to me to be a very credible possible explanation for this because the one thing that you do notice being sceptical and reading carefully about the two Spring Hill Jack reports that involve breathing fire at this period is that in both of those cases there was a, a source of fire available jane went and got a candle before mm-hmm. she, and she handed it to spring heel jack who held it up under his chin just before he breathed fire in her face mm-hmm. for goodness sake so so you know i actually do tend to think that there probably was something in this fire breathing business but it was very much of the magic trick type of variety and the imitator the person who's been inspired by all this newspaper coverage to go and do some mischief now Again, I know I've been talking about 20 minutes, so I'll just very quickly finish and say that another thing that comes to you when you read as much Victorian newspapers as I have is just how bored people used to get in the evenings, in that <laughs> period, when you know, not, there weren't even that many newspapers around, no radio, no television, no computers. The idea of playing the ghost, as it was called, going out and committing and pranking people was surprisingly widespread. There were dozens of these guys mm-hmm. leaping out with sheets over their heads and trying to scare the neighbours and so on. And so, you know, the idea that somebody would prank based on the Spring Hill Jack reports is a very, very, very credible idea indeed, as far as I'm concerned. Sounds like sounds like Halloween fun, except for the the incidents that are awful assaults, of course. Yeah, or indeed that lead to people getting killed because they've been mistaken for ghosts. That's happened in Hammersmith in 1804 when someone was shot dead for playing the ghost. Uh, so another another trend that I saw, and uh, what I loved so much about your work on Spring Hill Jack is it it seems almost like a microcosm, like a test case for all a lot of the stuff that I see when I when I'm uh, researching my show all the time. Besides the the newspaper reporting, besides the uh, unreliable uh, uh, witness testimony, and the, the secondary literature that you're talking about, and how it's been. Uh, uh, exaggerated. What I tend to see is folklore showing up, uh, or similarities to folklore, and it muddies the waters. Um, if we, like when I was researching the green, the green children of Woolpit, I was yeah. uh, of course dealing with a lot of different folk traditions there. One thread of that led me to uh, the Babes in the Wood nursery rhyme. Uh, it also sent me off to see if there was some influence but from the, the Princes in the Tower uh, story, but I was also finding connections to ancient fairy tales about exposed children that seemed to link these stories to you know, folk traditions that are similar to Snow White. Uh, or I, I did an episode about the White Lady, a German ghost story, basically, uh, and I found myself going down this rabbit hole that suggested all of these different White Lady ghost stories were born out of some old uh, goddess myth- mythology, uh, goddess traditions. So I know you found some some folkloric threads in the, the Spring Hill Jack legend, and uh, you mentioned some stories that they seem like they're popping up independently, almost, in multiple cultures. And I'm wondering if you could speak to the relationship between the the folkloric traditions, uh, uh, folklore, and how genuine events sometimes become embellished by folklore and become legends. Well, it's a. I know I it's mean, a big is, question. <laughs> no, no. Well, what I was going to say actually was this is really where you know academia needs to catch up with my own interests. I mean, you know, folklorists are aware of these types of things, but they haven't really spent as much time as I would ideally want studying or theorizing about them. So there are two aspects of folklore that are what you're describing. There, firstly, there's a thing that folklore is called ostention, which is folklore turning into reality, often with people sort of acting out 
stories. Hmm. Now that's you know, what we were just talking about with Spring Hill Jack is effectively ostension. That's relatively well understood and documented. Folklore also have this rather useful term, the migratory legend. And that's the sort of thing you were just talking about, where mm-hmm. the same sort of story crops up in different places and different times. But they do not have a mechanism to explain how and in what circumstances stories migrate. And that is frustrating the heck out of me, because um, what we're seeing is, um, with the case of Spring Hill Jack, I mean, again, it's possible now that I've been doing it for 30 years and with the internet to see that the same sorts of stories crop up outside the UK and outside the 1837-1904 time span that we're looking at. Mm-hmm. And this is completely fascinating to me. You get Spring Hill Jack reports from Newfoundland, where he's called Spring Hill Jackson, in fact. Jackson. You get them from Australia, you get them from New Zealand, you get them from South Africa. All of that is very, very clearly explainable because these are parts of the former British Empire. British people emigrate to those places. Um, newspaper and pamphlets and penny dreadfuls move from Britain out to those places. So I can understand how Spring Hill Jack stories occur in places like Australia. But Spring Hill Jack stories also occur in Russia at the time of the Russian Revolution in St. Petersburg. Mm-hmm. They occur in Somalia in the 1980s in Mogadishu during the warlord period. They occur in Czechoslovakia during World War II, where there's an incredibly Spring Hill-like Jack character called Perak, the Spring Man, who's terrorizing the German garrison of Prague. And I cannot, I have never been able to explain how those stories crop up in those places. They are not called Spring Hill Jack, but they are clearly the same story and nobody no folklorist no researcher of any sort of ever spoken to and i have tried has been able to credibly explain why the same story would crop up in such weirdly different places and times and how it could migrate and in what circumstances and via what mechanisms and i i'm still baffled by that but something is going on there that none of us really understand i think well that's uh that's just Fascinating. Thanks. Thank you so much for for the interview. I think that's really all I had, except for uh, the last thing is uh, uh, if you had any particular project. I mean, you mentioned that you are hoping within the next couple of years to f- publish all of your Spring Hill Jack work. So I I really look forward to that. Um, but is there any anything else you're currently working on well, that you want to share? Sure. I mean, my problem is I'm a very curious guy, and I'm constant. I read a huge amount. Um, and I listen, and I pick up stuff all the time that fascinates me, and I have, you know, when I was with the Smithsonian, um, they paid me to write an article a week for their magazine blog, history blog, and it was a wonderful time for me because I was being paid to investigate and write up something, and I had to do it in a week, which is actually a very good discipline for me, because what I tend to do when I'm not in that sort of deadline is just research and research and research, and I've got around about... Uh, three or four years backlog of research material I haven't had time to write up and probably at least 30 or 40 uh, of these stories and articles that I need to write. Mm-hmm. So a lot. Some of them aren't 40 and they're just mainstream. Well, not ma- I never do mainstream history. They're, they're just history. Um, but the thing that probably crosses over and which I've devoted the most attention to and I'm most excited by because it has got a lot of fresh material in it that I've managed to unearth is sin eating. I don't know how many people listening to this have ever heard of sin eating. This is the concept that when somebody dies, um, a sort of local reprobate, some sort of um, outsider from the the village, and this is something that happens mainly in Wales and the Welsh border in in, in the UK, but has been reported in places like Appalachia as well, in fact. Anyway, that somebody dies and this person will, will be called in and the corpse will be laid out and they will, the, the family will put a piece of bread and some salt on the chest of the corpse. The sin eater comes in, he eats mm-hmm. the food and drinks the draught of ale and says that it's an incantation. And in doing that, he takes on all of the sins of the deceased onto himself so that this person can mm-hmm. then, the soul can go to heaven, cleaned. But of course, the sin eater becomes more and more and more burdened by this sort of massive sin that he's taken on over his, his lifetime of sin eating um, and becomes ever more excluded and feared by the local community. Now, this is something which is a very, very vivid story, and it turns up in a lot of fiction. Um, so um, 
Patrick O'Brien, who wrote the Master and Commander series of naval books about Aubrey and Maturin. Mm-hmm. One of the members of his crew is a Sin Eater, for example. Uh, there have been a couple of um, books written by uh, American Christian writers about sort of uh, brave evangelical priests throwing the Sin Eating uh, superstition out of communities in Appalachia. <laughs> uh, and, you know, I mean, it, it's not uncommon. Heath Ledger starred in a movie about a Sin Eater at one point. Hmm. Um, but, again, in, as is the case with most of my stuff, um, there's a very very small amount of material that actually relates to genuine cases supposedly of sin eating and all of it has been written by outsiders from communities apparently had this practice so we have all of the sorts of things we've been talking about where the reporting is dubious there's a limited amount of information it's uncertain whether it ever happened properly at all ever and i've been devoting a lot of effort to try and work out what really was going on in Wales between about 1600 and 1850 and um, whether sin eating ever really did exist. And with that one, uh, I have found some new information in the Welsh language archives, which is quite exciting. And I'm hoping to publish something on that next year as well. So that will be a bit less of a monster project than Spring Hill Jack. <laughs> well, sounds sounds very interesting. So I'll look for that as well. Uh, so again, just thank you so much for doing this. This is actually my first interview that I've done for the the podcast Historical Blindness, and I consider you a good a good get, as they say, uh, and it's a great interview. So thanks so much. It's been a pleasure, and I'm sorry to have gone on such inordinate length. Oh, no. Uh, my listeners will appreciate it. I appreciated it. Yes, thank you very much. Thank you. Good to speak. And good luck with the uh, podcast going forward as well. Oh, thanks. Okay. Bye-bye. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. So listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts.